This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. My name is Joel Zoda, and I'll be the host for today's episode. I am a one and a half L student, uh, by which I mean I finished my first year of law at the University of Ottawa and am now away from the law school as I pursue my master's. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Derek Ross to the show. Derek is the executive director and general counsel for the Christian Legal Fellowship. I wanted to speak to him to address this stereotype in our profession where lawyers are perhaps seen as workaholics or greedy or perhaps self-centered. And I want to know what he thinks about this perspective and how he has used his religion to guide a more meaningful career that actually complements these beliefs rather than contradicts them. So, Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Joel. It's great to connect with you. Thanks so much for the invitation. And I'm glad we can make it work. I appreciate the patience. I know we've been going back and forth a little bit, but uh, better late than never. We're very, very happy to have you join us. Uh, so perhaps first, we usually just start. Can you please tell us about your career? Uh, what type of law do you practice? Sure. So yeah, currently I serve as executive director and general counsel for Christian Legal Fellowship, or CLF. CLF is a national association of lawyers, uh, law students, professors. Uh, we actually have chapters at most law schools, including uh, there at the University of Ottawa. So check us out if you're interested. We uh, love to connect with students who are interested in exploring the relationship between their faith and uh, the study and practice of law. So exactly what we're talking about today. Um, but also as an association of lawyers, uh, we work in, in the public square to offer our perspectives uh, and expertise uh, especially uh, as a friend of the court, uh, as an intervener in constitutional and charter and human rights cases. So that's where my current practice is focused, um, especially in the area of, of constitutional and charter litigation. Um, I've had the opportunity to participate as uh, intervention counsel in a number of charter cases, which have explored things like religious freedom and freedom of conscience, among other things. And it's a really, really interesting area. Excellent. Um, I, I'm glad you brought up the group on campus already. Uh, normally, I prompt people at the end to uh, to put in their plugs, but uh, I'm glad we got that early. Ch check us Absolutely. out the uh, organization on campus. Um, For sure. I want to prompt you a little bit more about the Christian Legal Fellowship uh, and the origin story, um, because uh, I think it's a really interesting one if you haven't, if no one spent time on the CLF website. Uh, and even if you're not interested in CLF itself, I think it speaks to uh, ambition and uh, the ability of young students to to take action, um, you know, at that stage in their career. So, so can you just explain how, sort of how the CLF got started? For sure. It, you know, it's interesting because CLF actually started as a student movement uh, in the 1970s. It was a group of law students in Ontario who uh, were very interested in thinking through the whole relationship between their their faith and the law and felt you know, these shouldn't be seen as two separate watertight compartments. Um, our faith is really important to who we are. Our vocation as lawyers and law students is very important to who we are. And we want to spend some time being very intentional about connecting those two things. And uh, so it started out with some student conferences and that 
resulted in the growth of a more formal organization. Those law students became lawyers, uh, and then a new generation of law students came behind them. And uh, now we have about 700 lawyers and law students across the country. And so, uh, you know, it's a very ecumenical organization. I think we now have over 40 different denominations represented in the membership. Um, and, and within that, you know, even within Christianity, there's there's a spectrum of views on a lot of issues. And so um, it's a really neat community to come together and and talk about legal issues through a, you know, the lens of our faith um, and also talk about our faith through a lawyer's and law student's lens. Um, so if folks are interested in those sorts of conversations, please do check us out. We have uh, conferences throughout the year. We've been doing a number of webinars throughout the year, especially with COVID. Um, and those are open to, to anyone interested. So uh, please check us out. That's some wonderful work. And you used two words there that I want to highlight on. Uh, intentional, I, I think, is such a good one. Uh, law, law school can seem to be moving so fast before you know it. It's uh, you're just getting, you're just understanding the basic principles of law. And then all of a sudden it's OCIs and you're on this track. And so this idea of just being intentional, purposeful with your pursuits, I think is a really important one. As is you highlight community. I was uh, watching some of the videos on the CLF's website and it, it absolutely does. Community seems a representative word. So uh, that's awesome. And people, people should check it out. I want to then, if you don't mind me getting uh, sort of more uh, personal, your own story, um, just where did your uh, religious beliefs, your convictions uh, come from? Uh, maybe how long have you had them and, and what led you to them? For sure. Well, you know, I think for me, like many people, it's it's been a journey. It's been a bit of a winding road and um, and a journey that I don't profess to have yet completed. Um, you know, I think like many folks, uh, we are still... That's right. You know, I think we're all still growing and developing and maturing in our understanding of of life's biggest questions. Um, but but for me, I I did grow up in a, a Christian home. My parents went to church and took us to church. Um, but but for me, it really was something that I needed to make it my own faith and not just adopt my parents' faith, but really set out on my own journey. Um, and so for me, where I've landed, or at least where I am right now as a Christian, has been a combination of different things. Some some of my journey has involved uh, personal experiences. Um, I remember when I was very young, uh, my mother was involved in a, a very serious car accident. Um, and really by all natural medical accounts, she she was expected to die. Um, but But she recovered. Uh, in fact, she made a full recovery eventually, which it, yeah, it, it, it surprised, um, I think even stunned a lot of the people who were involved in her care at the time. And, um, I know for my dad during that time, you know, his faith is what really sustained him. Uh, there were a lot of people pr praying for her, praying for a miracle. And, you know, that had a profound impact on me. Uh, it, I think it made the idea of prayer very real and very special to me. And also just observing how it bolstered my father in navigating, you know, a, a nightmare scenario that that had an impact um, and, and really sort of led me to believe that there is a, a, a higher, stronger force beyond what we can see um, just in terms of how miraculous really. Uh, and I use that term <laughs> intentionally here. Um, my mother's health recovery was, but I think my faith has all also been very much, um, an intellectual journey for me. 
uh, not just an experiential one. And and that that might sound like a bit of a paradox um, for some listeners to suggest that one reaches faith through reason. Um, and and every to some law students there, you're going to sure. have to finish writing someday. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and look, everyone's journey is very different, of course. But I think for me, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking and learning uh, and and discovering our world. And, and the more I've learned about our universe and our cosmos and its complexities and intricacies, the more difficult it's been to me, for me, um, to accept that all of this, everything around us is just somehow random or the result of coincidence. Um, I've really become convinced that there is something bigger than us, that there is an intentional design to all of this, especially, you know, when we think of the concept of reason and emotions and, you know, just the idea of love, for example, like, where does that come from? There has to be a source. And the, the more I explored it personally, the, the more convinced I've become that there has to be a higher power that is the source, not just of the world around us, but of these deeper intangible experiences and concepts and things like love, that there is a designer of love. You know, some of your listeners might be familiar with the author C.S. Lewis. Um, he's a really quotable guy. He's a guy Christians quote a lot. Um, but one of his quotes that really resonated with me um, was when he said, um, and the, and the quote is this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Um, and for me, that that really encapsulates my faith. So I, we could spend an entire podcast on packing all of these things. I, and I'm, I'm really probably barely doing justice to a very deep theological conversation here, but that's at least a very high level a perhaps oversimplified summary of where my journey has led me. No, uh, thank you. I think I think it's very insightful. I, I'm putting you a little bit on the spot. The role of no, uh, that's okay. Pastor as 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 well as lawyer, but no, I think that's I think that's really articulate. And you highlight sort of you mentioned community in your first answer, but then you really emphasize the role of the individual journey in, in the second mm-hmm. half. And I think that yin yin and yang is is critical. Mm-hmm. So thanks for raising that. Uh, the next then sort of stage in in your journey then uh, I want to know about is law school itself, or even maybe we can say yeah, education uh, more broadly. Um, t- maybe tell us about your experiences there. Uh, a- anything that you think is relevant. I know our our listeners, uh, you know, are, are largely law school students, and so uh, any any tidbits would be useful. But sort of more broad or more specifically, what I want to highlight is how busy law school, um, not just feels, I mean, it, it truly is busy. And so it's easy to maybe not make room for God or say, uh, I'm too busy for God. Um, and, and in an undergrad mm-hmm. context, um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe not just too busy, but perhaps better things to do. You're on your own for the first time. You're exploring all these other aspects. Uh, if you don't mind sharing, uh, what was that time like for you uh, with your relationship with God? And if it if it was great, uh, how did you able to manage that? And and if it was maybe a struggle, um, how, how did you course correct? Mm. Well, those are good questions. Um, 
Well, first of all, I think for me, law school was very similar, I'm sure, to what what um, I'm sure you experienced, Joel, and many of your when many of your listeners experience. It, it was a challenging time, uh, so I'm sure not much has changed in that regard. Um, I went to Western, um, and, and in many ways, I was very fortunate to have had a great experience there. Um, I was able to connect. Actually, that's where I really got connected with Christian Legal Fellowship. There was a great student chapter there. Uh, there was a real sense of community, a place to come together with others and you know, ask some difficult and honest questions about our faith. Um, and also, you know, to, to have, there was a great space there to dialogue with students from other faiths or who were not religious at all uh, and just talk about some of life's bigger questions. But, um, you know, I think law school, I kind of describe it the way uh, Charles Dickens opens um, The Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Um, and uh, in some ways, you know, law school is a really special time. You're preparing for an exciting career. You're surrounded by very interesting people. You're, you're, you're engaging in some great conversations, really interesting conversations like this one. You're, you're uh, building some new friendships. You're studying things that hopefully you're very interested in and, and, and passionate about. Um, <clears throat> but I know that's not everyone's experience, at least not all of the time. And it has these very challenging aspects as well. It certainly did for me. And for me, you know, that was the stress of performing well, um, the, or trying to perform well, the, the anxiety about getting the right job, making the right decisions about your career, you know, getting good grades, paying off debt, um, constantly comparing myself to others, feeling like an imposter because everyone seems so much smarter than me. Um, it's hard. It's, it's really, really hard. Um, and you know, when you're going through it, you think, and I thought I must be the only person that that's having this difficult a time. Um, but you know, being in that community with others, you know, there was a space where we could be very honest with each other and share, no, this is a common struggle. And since then, you know, I think every lawyer I've talked to about this has experienced much of what I've just described. Um, there's really no one immune from, from those challenges. Uh, but it's so hard to see past our immediate struggles. Um, and I think one of the biggest struggles I had in law school was I started to place my sense of worth and my sense of identity in how I performed. And Absolutely. I saw, and I think many of us saw, see our value only through the law. Um, and specifically, you know, I think we measure ourselves by how we think we are perceived by others in the law school community or later on in the legal profession. So we place so much pressure on ourselves to do well on exams and interviews and everything else because, well, if, if I'm not a good law student, what am I? Who am I? It, it's right. It's, I think so become, much your sense of identity at this point. Huge. And I became terrified of failure. Um, not just failure, but you know, terrified of anything less than an optimal performance. And I had a hard time sometimes seeing myself as having value outside of that. Uh, but that, so going back to your question, this is sort of a long-winded answer to where my faith came in. 
it, it was in that struggle that my faith became a real lifeline because it reminded me that my worth and my identity and my self-esteem and my purpose, none of those things are dictated by my performance. Um, the universe is so much bigger than law school as hard as hard as it is to realize that sometimes. And um, for me, my faith reminded me that I have worth, not as, uh, you know, how well I do on my exams, but as a child of God created by him and loved by him, no matter what. And that's also, you know, that faith also reminded me that that's how I needed to view and continue to need to view others as well. Thank you so much for that uh, vulnerability. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that hasn't changed that imposter syndrome. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a continuation. Uh, I, I want to highlight the, the value, placing value and our sense of self-worth on what we do. Um, Mm. Uh, this is i don't think this is a phenomenon unique to lawyers uh, i know it's not um but this this is a tendency of our society that i think a lot of people struggle with and uh are actually a timely it's timely that we're having this conversation now uh recently our sermon at uh eucharist church in hamilton where i attend uh discussed sort of these three um perennial lies uh that we tell ourselves i am what i do i am what i have and uh, forgive me, Kevin, the third is escaping me right now. But um, <laughs> taking uh, you talk about the, the sense of comfort or recognition of something bigger. You said the words mm -hmm. child of God. Uh, that sort mm -hmm. of sums it up, right? It, we, are, we are brought here, uh, given this world for us. So how could we uh, be so uh, ego, egotistic to believe that it, it's what matters is what we do here? Uh, in terms of uh, you know productivity grades or billable hours, um, and, and your your other notion about anxiety about uh, getting on the right job and things like that. Well, I mean, obviously these are real concerns, mm -hmm. but also it, once you if, once you recognize and take comfort in the uh, the concept of a bigger plan, uh, the, these sort of things all hopefully uh, you can make peace with them. I was just going to say too, like in some ways, um, it takes the pressure off. Um, but it also adds meaning and purpose to um, the importance of the work that we do in facilitating and promoting justice. Um, because if you do believe that there is a greater design um, for the cosmos and that there is a need to restore uh, brokenness where the where there is brokenness and to heal um, – relationships that have been broken, um, you see that there's a greater purpose even in our day-to-day -day work of facilitating and promoting that that design for justice, which I think is just hardwired uh, in, in, in our nature as human beings to, to want to be reconciled, to want to see wrongs righted, uh, to want to see relationships restored. You know, I think that's part of how we're designed as well. And lawyers play such a significant role in cultivating that that commitment to justice. Um, so it's both a, um, a way of taking pressure off oneself, but also finding purpose and meaning and um, fulfillment in the, uh, the goodness of the work that we're called to do. Uh, absolutely. Very well said. Um, 
religion is not a, uh, a scapegoat that uh, nothing what I nothing that I do matters or I, I have no say. It's it's not a nihilist approach. In fact, as you highlight, it's it can really be the motivation, the justification for uh, the best way of living. But thank you so much for that point. Which it is a really good segue to to then. Uh, in what way do you see your faith interacting with your work now? I mean, you you highlighted at the top of the show, but uh, maybe get into that more, and, and also uh, the challenges of of being a man of faith in in this line of work. But also, in what ways can it be an advantage? For sure, no great questions, Jewel. Um, well, you know, just in terms of what I believe as a Christian, I I aspire to follow the teachings and example of Jesus. And I say aspire because I, <laughs> I regularly miss the mark there. Um, but Christ's model, uh, Christ's model is the path I try to follow. And in terms of what that means is, as we've sort of said already, uh, you know, I believe that there is a loving creator who designed this universe, who lovingly created you and me and, every other person in his image. Um, I believe that God is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful. Um, I believe God is real and that God is love and that Jesus said it best, uh, (laughs) as he always did when he summarized what our faith is all about. He said that all of the Bible is summed up in two commitments. Um, The first is that we are to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. And the second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. So in terms of what that means, you know, how that plays out in my work for me, and I think for many people of faith, my faith informs all aspects of my life. Um, Those commitments are those two commitments that, that Jesus said, those are a defining part of who I am. At the same time, my work as a lawyer is an integral part of who I am. Um, and I think that's true of, of many of us who end up in law school. We see our work in the law that way as, as more than just a job, perhaps, um, but as a reflection or a fulfillment of something deeper, uh, a deeper passion for justice that we have. Um, regardless of you know what our specific religious commitments might be, and so lawyering, the vocation of justice, that's an integral part of who I am too. Uh, but I don't see those as two separate identities. Um, I'm not a Christian on Sunday only, and a lawyer the rest of the week. I am. I am a Christian lawyer throughout. And so my faith, it informs my legal ethics, my conception of justice. Um, It informs the seriousness with which I accept and try to carry out my professional obligations. So I see it as an integration, and, and that means I need to carry out my work as an integrated whole. Um, and you know, that, that work integration integrated, it's, it's an interesting one because it shares the same etymology, the same root word as integrity, which of course is one of our foremost 
ethical du- duties as lawyers is to act with integrity. And both those words, integrated and integrity, they share a root word, uh, which means whole or complete or undivided. And to me, that's not just semantics. I think to truly practice law with integrity, we have to do so with our ethical framework intact. And for many of us, our ethical framework is informed by our faith. So we need to find a way to integrate our core religiously informed ethical commitments with what we do in the law office every day, or else we we risk practicing law in a way in which we've severed our core identity and we become untethered and we start to drift. Um, so for me, integrity means practicing in a way that is consistent with the virtues of my faith, virtues like uh, compassion, humility, truthfulness, and honesty. Um, and, and that again, the, that's a standard I don't, I, I, I fall short of sometimes. Um, but that is, that is the aspiration. Thank, thank you so much, Derek. Um, the, you mentioned the drift, um, uh, with, without having, um, your, your faith as sort of your, your lighthouse, the guide, how, how one can drift. And I think that's exactly, um, where these stereotypes that I mentioned at the top come in, um, in a workplace culture that, that demands so much, um, maybe without having that anchor, uh, it's, it's no surprise that a drift could occur. So I can, I can really see the utility here. Um, I think I'll, I'll let you off the hook and I really appreciate your, uh, your vulnerability and exploring some of those things from the personal angle. I'll, I'll make it a little bigger picture now. And I know recently the CBA, uh, that is the Canadian Bar Association, uh, recently had their AGM and had some uh, resolutions tabled, including one regarding uh, religion in the practice. Uh, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about that? For sure. No, thanks for asking about that. So let me let me just take a step back and give some more context um, surrounding the conversation that our legal profession is currently having about religious inclusion. Um, part of that conversation has been connected to Quebec's Bill 21, um, mm-hmm. which, which I'm sure folks are familiar with. But just by way of background, Bill 21 bans the wearing of religious symbols in certain uh, workplaces, uh, specifically those that are connected with government or the public sector. And uh, the idea behind this bill is that those who are um, connected to the government need to be seen as neutral, religiously neutral. And so the bill prohibits a number of uh, categories of employees uh, and civil servants from wearing religious symbols. Uh, but what's interesting and I think very relevant for, for our conversation is that one of those categories uh, is public sector lawyers and specifically lawyers who work for the government, who are contracted by the government or work in certain fields connected to the provincial government. And what that means basically in, in Quebec is that you can't have an openly religious identity and practice law in many uh, areas of the public sector. 
you can't identify with your faith. You can't express it in even the most passive way. You have to keep your religious identity private, hidden, suppressed, basically. And so for some lawyers, they're being forced to do the very thing we we just talked about, which I said I can't do, which is to sever their religious identity from their work. They They effectively have to deny who they are and basically pretend to be someone or something they are not. And some lawyers simply cannot do this. It's it's not a choice in some faith traditions to whether to wear a religious symbol. It is a fundamental aspect of their religious expression. And those lawyers are now effectively banned from public service. And this isn't this isn't just a hypothetical scenario. My friend um, Nur Farad is a lawyer in Montreal. Uh, she wears a hijab, a headscarf, as an expression of her Muslim faith. Um, and as a result of that, she cannot work as a prosecutor for the Quebec government, which has been her dream uh, throughout her career. So she's being denied that opportunity, not because of her merits or her experience or her capabilities or training, but solely because of her religion. So uh, Neuer has written about her experiences. She's been very open about this. Um, and she's given uh, you know, permission for me to share. We've, we've co-written some articles on this as well. And she has explained how, in her words, this, this, is, this development has been truly devastating. So, so that's the background. Uh, and uh, Neuer and I have been in a conversation now for some time. And along with some others, we felt that the legal profession in particular had to stand up against this religious discrimination. I don't know what else to call it, but religious discrimination. That's, and so- that seems uh, like the fitting term to me. For sure. And so we brought forward a resolution uh, to the Canadian Bar Association at their annual general meeting last year, uh, and it was adopted. It was voted upon and approved by the membership. Um, and that resolution affirms that the administration of justice is, and this is the quote, enriched by the equal and full participation of religious lawyers without discrimination. And that resolution also affirms that any law or government policy that denies equal opportunities to lawyers based on their religion is unjust and, and contrary to the principles of an independent bar. So we were really um, encouraged by that resolution. Uh, that's on the CBA's website. It's called uh, Commitment to Religious Equality. Uh, and that resolution also specifically de denounced Bill 21 and commits the CBA to combating any discrimination uh, in the legal profession based on religion. So that was last year. And then this year, just uh, last month, a follow-up resolution was passed at the 2021 CBA AGM, which specifically includes religious groups in the CBA's definition of diversity, which was missing before. So we're, we're very encouraged by that. These, these resolutions from the Canadian Bar Association very clearly affirm that 
a lawyer's religious identity is not and should not be seen as somehow inconsistent with the practice of law or good lawyering. In fact, the opposite is true, that the administration of justice is really enhanced when we welcome religious lawyers and when lawyers can be true to their religious identity and not face pressure to hide that aspect of who they are. Amen. Uh, that that might shock some listeners, uh, myself included, that it that that religion was not already included in the definition of diversity. I, I guess that shows really why uh, CLF and similar organizations are, are necessary. But um, if if you if I may prod a little further, do you have uh, any indication of of why it wasn't already included? And I'm also curious. Uh, on the the website uh, for the CBA, I was able to see the resolution, but not, um, I don't know what the voting formula is or uh, what percentage of support I got. I'm just wondering, um, was it quite unanimously supported or was there uh, any controversy over this matter? Yeah, well, in terms of the voting, we don't... Uh we don't have access. It's not publicly reported um, what the vote is. So we don't know what the, we, we don't know what the split was or how close the vote was, but uh, all we know is that it passed. And, um, you know, I think for the most part uh, it's been very um, widely supported, both of these initiatives uh, in terms of the, um, the absence of religion in the definition before. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's precisely why conversations like this one are so important. Um, you know, the definition did not purport to be an exhaustive one. Um, so the definition of diversity uh, said, uh, you know, it applies to equity seeking groups, including the following, and then it listed a number of specifically uh, enumerated groups, but religion was not specifically included. And so what we wanted to do here was just make very explicit what we think was already implicit, but needed to be more explicitly said, especially because, you know, of all of these um, groups, you know, it's, it's extraordinary that in Quebec, as I said before, you know, there, there is now effectively a religious test in some ways uh, for public service. And so that's why we felt this of, 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 uh, you know, of, of all the things that we're talking about when we're wanting to promote equality in the legal profession, that this very much needed to be part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I, you know, I think for, for further reading, um, please do check out some of the articles that newer has written. Um, and of course, as, as your listeners may know, Quebec bill, Quebec's bill 21 is currently the subject of a constitutional challenge. It's making its way through the courts. Um, we're expecting a decision I think at some point this year um, about uh, from the Quebec Superior Court on the constitutionality of the ban. Um, of course, one of the issues is that the Quebec government has invoked Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, uh, because on its face, of course, this appears to be very much a, a textbook case of a violation of not just religious freedom, but the right to religious equality, which is also protected in Section 15 of the Charter. Uh, but the Quebec government has invoked the notwithstanding clause. So one of the legal arguments is, um, you know, to what extent does the notwithstanding clause immunize this entire piece of legislation from charter scrutiny? And that's something that the court is going to be looking at. 
Yeah, it seems like maybe a, a slam dunk uh, constitutional law 101 uh, on the first matter. But uh, yeah, it, it might prove to be a seminal uh, case uh, with a lot more study needed for Section 33. For sure. And, you know, again, I think it goes to the conversation that we're having right now, which is underlying Bill 21 seems to be this assumption that your religion is not an asset. It's a liability to the practice of law. And I think that's what where so much more work needs to be done within our profession and our communities to highlight how one's faith commitments actually enrich and enhance and bolster uh, their ability to do good work in the legal profession and in the administration of justice. Um, and uh, and certainly that's that's my strong belief. And, uh, you know, I think that belief is, is shared by many others in the profession as well. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Thanks for highlighting that and, and you know, continuing the, the sort of dialogue to make that idea more prevalent. Uh, and this, this whole sort of argument kind of goes back to these sort of political uh, philosophy ideas that if you don't, um, if, if a state or if a citizenship does not exercise a right and takes it for granted, uh, it is sure to be lost. Um, so uh, I, I thank you and others for uh, exercising and advocating uh, on behalf of these rights. For sure. I think precisely what you're doing with this podcast, you know, uh, having this conversation is so important. And I, and I hope listeners whatever their faith background or, or non-faith background might be, um, you know, I hope some of this resonates with them in terms of the need to facilitate, you know, a more public conversation about, about these issues and really appreciative of your efforts to provide that space here. Uh, absolutely. Uh, of course. Uh, and I'm appreciative as well. Are there any um, final thoughts, things that I, I should have asked, but I didn't, or perhaps just some uh, parting words of wisdom? <laughs> well, no, the, the, you, this has been a great conversation. And, and I think, you know, these have been really thought provoking questions that I'm going to continue to reflect on. And, uh, you know, I think there's much more that could be said about all of them. Um, you know, one of the things that you asked was uh, that I didn't, I just realized I didn't answer. You asked me, you know, what are some of the benefits or what do I see as um, the advantages of, of being religious in this line of work? And, uh, you know, for me, my hope is that my faith makes me a better lawyer. Um, I, I go back to what Jesus said about loving our neighbor. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a well-known uh, quote um, and, and very, you know, fundamental principle, the golden rule that, that we are commanded as Christians to elevate others and treat them the way that we would want to be treated. Um but what some people might not know is that um, Jesus engaged in this whole conversation at the inquiry of a lawyer. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan was triggered by a question that a lawyer asked Jesus. After Jesus uh, said that we are to love our neighbor, a lawyer in the crowd speaks up and says, well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> and so we've got, we've got some... Uh, in the initial of Montague and Stevenson, no? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, and, and so even back then, we've, we've got some very early statutory interpretation going on, you know, classic, classic lawyer, how do we define the term neighbor? And that's what led Jesus to tell the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and I'm sure most folks are familiar with it, but 
just very briefly, that's the story of a man who is beaten and left to die. And the first two people who come upon him are from his own community, but they walk just, they just walk past him. And the third person that comes along is a Samaritan who would have been in that context uh, considered very much a cultural and religious outsider, uh, if not a full out enemy. And that Samaritan stops to help this man. And the Samaritan tends to his wounds and brings him to safety and pays for his accommodation until he recovers. And then at the end of this story, Jesus turns back to the lawyer and he asks, of these three men, who do you think seemed to be a neighbor? And the lawyer answered, the Samaritan, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And so I think Jesus's instruction to that lawyer 2,000 years ago is the same instruction that we as lawyers ought to pay heed to. Um, the, the moral of the story there is that our definition of who we consider our neighbor, who we are called to love and respect, is unlimited. It's not confined to any definition. We are called to love everyone as ourselves, to treat everyone the way we would want to be treated. So everyone I come into contact with then is my neighbor, whether it be my office colleagues, my staff, my client, my opposing counsel, or the opposing party. Uh, our faith, my faith, requires me to treat them with respect and to approach them with a posture of service and humility, regardless of who they are. So that's just one example um, of, of how I see my faith needing to inform my practical understanding of the law. But I will say, you know, connecting these dots between our religious and professional commitments, that is such an important exercise. And it's a continuing process, certainly not one that I've perfected, um, but certainly one that's deserving of, as we said earlier, our, our intentional efforts. Um, and, and hopefully this conversation has been helpful in beginning maybe a larger conversation about those things. I am going to resist the urge to make a duty of care joke because I think that's a wonderful place to, to end this conversation. <laughs> uh, go, go and do likewise. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for your time. Uh, listeners, if, uh, if anyone enjoyed this a fraction of, as much as I did, uh, it, was, it was worth doing. Check out uh, CLF on uh, University of Ottawa's campus or any law school in Ontario and several outside. And, and Derek, thanks once again. Oh, thank you so much, Joel. Thanks. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for inviting me. All the best. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show. <laughs>